in the book of Leviticus, chapter 11. As we get started here, it's once again valuable for us to kind of fit where we are tonight in the broader context of the book. So far in Leviticus, uh, it began uh, with these five sacrifices that make up Israel's worship, and then we saw the ordination of the priests um, in chapters 8 and 9, and then kind of a, a reality check of the reminder of God's holiness with the death of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10. Um, chapter 11 picks up particularly on something that's stated in chapter 10. And so if you're looking there, um, this is God addressing the priesthood as a whole, and he says in verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And so it gives the priesthood two tasks on top of the sacrificial system here. First, there there to be the gatekeepers, or, or maybe better would be the referees of the difference between what's holy and common, what's clean and unclean. Chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 all focus on those categories, holy, common, clean, and unclean, and they culminate in chapter 16 in the Day of Atonement. Now, honestly, one way to look at the chapters we're in tonight and and uh, Leviticus chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement would be weird stuff, important stuff, right? We have all of these kosher laws. We're going to talk about skin diseases and bodily discharges. And then finally, we get to something that is pivotal to Israel's worship, the Day of Atonement. Um, But if you don't catch um, the relationship, then you miss out on part of what the Day of Atonement signifies. Look at what it says in verse 16 of chapter 16, if you jump ahead. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. Okay, so what's accomplished on the day of atonement? It deals both with their sin and with their uncleanness. Okay, and so there's a sense where the day of atonement is a culmination of all of the teachings that come before it. All of these smaller rituals that deal with personal, individual uncleanness culminate in a national, corporate dealing with uncleanness in the Day of Atonement. So structurally, that's what's going on with the book. Now, there's a bigger question we have to ask. As I mentioned, this week and next week, we're going to talk um, about clean and unclean animals. We're going to talk about skin diseases. We're going to talk about uh, mildew manifestations or infestations in houses. We're going to talk about bodily discharges. Um, and the question becomes, uh, what is all of this about? Okay. Now, the first thing we have to do before we can really answer that question is go back to those four words that we saw in Leviticus 10. Verse 10, there is the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. Okay, those terms are kind of the spectrum of the ritual states of Israel. Now, we don't live in a culture that really has ritual states, but it's worth recognizing that many cultures still do. If we were going through a passage like this and we were sitting in a church in New Delhi, for example, 
uh, these things would make sense. The lists of what makes you clean or unclean may be different, but the distinguishing marks of these states um, uh, would be familiar. Maybe the closest we come is uh, when we actually put on a piece of clothing that represents a change in state, like when we go to a wedding, right? A wedding changes your state from single to married, and it comes with clothing, and it comes with ritual, right? Now, ritual is something we understand as Christians because we have a couple of ritual things that we engage in. Um, but these four states, I, I want you to think about them as, as being, um, being two separate but related circles, okay? And so one of these circles at the far polar end is unclean and then clean. And then mixed in with the clean is common and then holy, okay? So, for example, something that's holy can be desecrated, then it becomes, becomes common. Something clean and common can become defiled, then it becomes unclean. Something that's unclean can be washed and it becomes clean, but to be holy, it needs to be sanctified. In fact, many times in the book of Leviticus, the distinction in moving up that ladder, if you will, from unclean to clean, from common to holy, the distinction here is one of water. It's one of washing. Whereas the distinction over here between holy is one of blood. It's one of something, it's more profound in its state. Um, But these are the three states that all Israelites would be familiar with. And so the priesthood, when they put on their garments, were holy. They lived in a state of holiness. The rest of Israel generally lived in a state of common, although they sometimes engaged with holy things. Um, But clean and unclean was something that distanced them both from being able to worship at the temple and sometimes distanced them from being in relationship with one another, as we'll see tonight, okay? But here's the difficulty that we have when we use these words clean and unclean. First off, we instantly think of hygiene, right? That's what the words carry for us. And there's definitely hygienic principles here, but that's not the primary point, okay? A lot of scholars would, cho- uh, would prefer we use the language of pure and impure. But the problem is, even when we do that, I think it is helpful, even when we do that, unclean and impure both carry extremely negative connotations when we use them metaphorically. Okay? And what we need to recognize is there is a difference between unclean and sinful. There's a difference between clean and righteous. In fact, if you read the prophet Isaiah closely, you'll find people who are clean and unrighteous. And they're criticized for that. Ritually, their hands are clean. Spiritually, their hands are covered in blood. Okay. And so these things have to be kept separate. And then then we have to say, well, then why do it at all? What is the point of these things? Okay. Here's what we have to understand. Ritual is never about the ritual itself. This is true of communion. We go through the ritual of communion, partaking of the bread and the blood, not because there's anything really of substance in the act itself, but going through the motions of the act is representative, it's symbolic, its significance is deeper. It's not about bread and wine at all, it's about the body and blood of Jesus. That's how all ritual works, okay? It always points to something deeper, it always points to something more significant. 
One of the things that it does for Israel has to do with teaching them a language. I mean, imagine that you're an Israelite, you know all of these things, and so in your daily life, you're constantly going, okay, this makes me clean, this makes me unclean, I'm currently in a place of uncleanness, I need to go through this ritual to get clean, right? You get used to the language. When I took German in middle school, my teacher was an immersion teacher, meaning that for the first two weeks, I never heard him say an English word in my class. And after that, he would spend the first half of the class all in German, and then he'd say, okay, break, and then he'd tell us what had been going on. But for the first two weeks, it was absolutely surreal because he would just speak to us in German until we did what he wanted us to do. And so he would say, stay off, and we'd sit there and look at him with a dumb look. He'd say, stay off, and he'd start to gesture till we get it, and we'd stand up, and he'd say, setzdeken, and we'd sit down. And we'd do it over and over again. And pretty soon it was stay off, gate sudem octen shrunk, and we'd walk over to the filing cabinet and then return to our seats, set to kin. It wasn't about knowing where the filing cabinet was, right? It wasn't about the action of standing up and sitting down. It was a ritual that got us used to the language. And that's very important for us to understand, Okay. We'll come back to this later, but I want to keep that in place. And so what we'll see is that all of these things are effectively a, um, a training school for deeper truths, which is why the Bible goes on later to criticize those who are very great. They're A-plusing their lessons and have no idea why they're doing it, right? They've made the outer manifestation more important than the inner teaching. This first section, chapter 11, is all about all about animals, all about clean and unclean animals, especially which ones could be eaten and which ones could not be eaten, but then it'll also get into um, the dead bodies of animals. So let's just jump in um, verse 1 of 11. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on earth. Okay. Now the chapter is going to go on and it's going to divide into four sections. Land animals, sea animals, animals of the air like birds, uh, and then swarming and crawling and creepy crawlies. That's the last category. Um, as it goes through, it's going to divide between two categories, edible and non-edible animals. And it's worthwhile asking what's the difference? And throughout time, there's been a lot of different suggestions. Maybe you're familiar with the hygienic interpretation. That says basically that God divinely preempting the realities that we know of science uh, protected Israel from animals that would be dangerous to eat. So by way of illustration, pork carries a lot of particular diseases, especially if not handled properly. And so by... Uh, limiting their pork intake, they were protected from all sorts of diseases. Now, the primary problem with the, with the hygienic approach to Leviticus um, is that when Jesus comes, he declares all these things clean. We'll see that in a little bit. What makes this compelling, this side, and we'll see there's things in this that don't make the list that probably should, um, there's lines that seem to be arbitrary, but, but most of the time when we take a hygienic approach to this, we're contrasting Israel's life with modern life, okay? And we go, well, now 
it's okay, all things are clean, because we know if we cook pork at 165 degrees, everything will be fine, right? Or now we have refrigeration, and so we can avoid some of these things. The problem with that is refrigeration wasn't invented in the Roman Empire. It's not a first century invention. And so when Jesus comes and declares all things clean, you're hard-pressed to find uh, drastic cooking preparation changes historically that make things differently. So either God cares more about the health of Israel than he does Christians, or that's not a very good way to view the law. Okay? Another possibility is that all of these are allegorical or ethical in nature. So, for example, Philo was a Jewish teacher who predated Jesus, and he looked at the law and trying to explain it to his Greek audience said, look, the animals we're allowed to eat are the ones that chew the cud, meaning that they chew their food, they swallow it, and then they regurgitate it, and they chew it more, and then they swallow it again. Um, And he said, effectively, that's because we should be meditating on the law. We should recall it and chew on it some more and swallow it. He said that the, the separated hooves have to do with how we live our life. He said that we shouldn't eat pigs because pigs are filthy animals and we're not to be filthy people. Um, and so that was the approach he took. The primary problem with this is that the interpretations are as numerous as the interpreters. It's terribly subjective. You may look at one thing and read it one way, and another person goes, well, why can't it be this other way? Uh, and the truth is, of course it can. It's, it's just a subjective. It just, it's a says-you approach to understanding these things. There's another approach, one that I think is very interesting, which is to say that the foods that Israel was to avoid are the ones that were used primarily in pagan acts of worship around them. And actually, at first glance, that makes a lot of sense. For example, we know that pigs, and specifically pigs' blood, was a primary element of pagan sacrifices in nations juxtapositionally related around Israel. But the biggest problem with that is that there's still the calf, which is a clean animal and was used for sacrifice in all sorts of places, and it's also the only one that they made a golden image of and worshipped, not just once, but on two different occasions in their history. So, we have to ask, and the first thing that we should understand is the one that's written in the text. I want you to notice, and we'll, we'll get there again, but let's just make note of it. Verse, verse 43, you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And so what does he say here? He gives two reasons. He says, don't eat these types of foods, the unclean ones, because I am your God, and you're to be set apart for me. Okay? And so a primary thinking behind the kosher laws here is simply just separation. And I want you to recognize how obviously this plays out in the Old Testament and the New Testament, because what you can eat also determines who you eat with who you have table fellowship with, right? In fact, this is a problem after Jesus declares all things clean, the Jews are uncomfortable with sitting at the table with Gentiles because the things that Gentiles eat are on the unclean list. And so one of the primary things that God is doing with this is keeping them separate, making distinction. 
And maybe some of those distinctions are on what they eat and what they don't eat. Like you'll read on here that they're not allowed to eat camels, and we'll go, well, yeah, of course. But that's not true of most of the other people around Israel. And so there's this distinction, this set-apartness. Now, does that make God's law arbitrary? No, not necessarily. And there are those who suggest that maybe that, that, that this is just arbitrary, that God wanted to command them in some way, that he wanted to engage with them, even at the level of what they ate, and so he picked these rules. And the real thing that we should pay attention to is just what the rules say, because God said them, so we should obey. And it's worth pointing out that that is exactly where the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden, right? With a food restriction, a dietary restriction. All of the trees in the garden you can eat except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And there's a sense where you could look at that and say, of course that's arbitrary. God planted the whole garden. He designed all the things. The fact that he put it there, right, is in some sense arbitrary, but it's not arbitrary because it's got a purpose of testing their obedience. It's got a purpose of, um, uh, a purpose entailed. And so maybe the purpose here is one primarily of separation. Now there is a modern sociologist who's, who's gaining traction in her uh, approach to uh, understanding these food laws that we're about to look, for, look at. Her name is Mary Douglas. And she was a sociologist who was living with some tribe in some place and realized that they had similar categories of clean and unclean. And she noticed that the reason seemed to be in their tribes that they drew a distinction between the normal version of things and the abnormal version of things. Okay? So, for example, ducks would be fine, beavers would be fine, platypus don't eat. Right? She seemed to notice similar things in what goes on here. In fact, it's intriguing that as we walk through these, it follows the primary categories of creation, the three realms of the world, which is the sky, the earth, and the sea. And so one of the things that she points out is that things that don't seem to be staying in their place aren't edible, okay? Like amphibians. Are they in the ocean? Are they on the land? Yes, don't eat them, okay? In the same way, she pointed to things that were normal. And so, for example, uh, insects who fly but have more than two legs are not like birds who have two legs and fly. Birds that have wings and don't fly, also inedible. Uh, Carry-on birds are off the list. Anything that eats flesh. Even when it looks at land animals, it makes a distinction between those who walk on feet and those who walk on paws. Because what is a paw? It's like a hand, right? And so one of the lists we'll see includes don't eat mice or alligators. And you go, wait, how are they the same? They're the same because they walk on four hand-like appendages instead of feet, hoof-like appendages, okay? Now, even her suggestion doesn't get us all the way, but it probably does get us thinking in the right direction. The goal of these things is for them to recognize the things that conform to a standard and therefore the things that don't conform to the standard. Now, can you see how that would be of ritualistic importance, a teaching tool to help them to distinguish between uh, more important categories? Let's walk through and then we'll come back to it. So, 
Speaking of the land animals first, verse 2, speak to the people of Israel saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. So what does it say first? Two conditions of land animals. They must both have a split hoof and chew the cud. One of two is not good enough. It has to be both. Um, verse 5, And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it's unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. Now, part of the reason why Mary Douglas's interpretation is intriguing is because her way of setting a standard and pointing out those that don't conform to it is the same one we see in the text. Do you see that? She sets a standard, chew the cud and cut uh, and split hoof, and then takes anything that doesn't fit and sets it aside and calls it unclean. Let's continue in verse 8. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now, she also points out that although this idea of unclean, or even the word detestable, which is not really a bad translation here, um, of some of the words we're going to see tonight, what it actually does is preserve the species. Okay, so the animals, they're not allowed to eat. They're also not allowed to touch their carcasses, which, side note, means they're not allowed to kill them. They can't use any of their body parts for, um, for buttons or for clothing or for bags or any of that. Um, and so they're left on their own and completely preser- preserved and, in one sense, allowed to continue to be fruitful and multiply as they were supposed to back in the book of Genesis chapter 2, okay? And so this is hard for us because we hear unclean and we instantly think negative, but it may be a little bit more nuanced than that. Let's continue on in verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, okay? So we've changed from the land to the water. Everything in the water that has fins and scales, whether in the sea or river, you may eat. Okay, so recognize with me tonight that the majority of sea life have both of those things, fins for swimming and scales, but we can also think of ones that don't, okay? So for example, the eel. The eel has fins, but it doesn't have scales. It's slippery, it's slimy, it doesn't have the same thing, and so there's a standard. This is what your average ocean dweller looks like. Anything that doesn't fit the standard is unclean. It continues here, verse 10, but anything in the seas or rivers that has not fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and the living creatures that are in the waters is to be detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. So there's that strong word, detestable, but I would still argue it's worth pointing out here that it wasn't detestable like we need to slaughter all of them because there's some sort of um, uh, uh, abomination that needs to be destroyed, right? It's not that these are sea monsters that you should be afraid of and eradicate, right? You're to leave them alone. They're not to be eaten. Verse 13, these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. Now, notice here, no reason is given for the birds, just a list. But when we look at the list, we can see what they have in common. Here they are. They are detestable. The eagle, 
the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, and the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the comrant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork and the heron of any kind, the hopo and the bat. Okay. Now, side note, we aren't exactly sure we know what all these things are. Some of these words, the only place they occur is in lists like this. And I'll tell you what, there aren't any Hebrew, uh, you know, naturalist picture books that guide us to what animal they're actually referring to. Some we're a bit more confident about. Um, like we're pretty sure a bat means a bat. And I don't think we're surprised why that one makes the list, right? Not just because you wouldn't want to eat one, but it is one of the most unique things flying around in the world, right? It's clearly not a bird, And so that sets it apart. But most of the things on this list are either winged things that do not fly, like the ostrich, or carrion birds that eat flesh. Now, remember that the Jews are not allowed to eat any animal with the blood still in it. And so so it makes sense, just at a glance, at a cursory understanding, that carrion birds would be off the menu. Um, it continues on here and it goes to insects in verse 20. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all four, you may eat those who have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. You see how there it seems to deal with their mobility? Okay. And so the ones that have legs, but they're basically just like a helicopter has legs just to land on. Helicopters don't walk, right? Uh, But the jointed ones that hop, like the locusts, those ones are okay. The distinction seems to be the same. Verse 22, of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Now, it's worth pointing out, as foreign as this stuff may feel to you tonight, that we also have standards of what we eat and what we don't eat, and not all of them are really that unarbitrary. For example, there are things on French menus that you probably don't think of as food, right? And why do we draw that line, right? We can go to cultures that are totally okay with eating horses, whereas we would not be. If somebody asked you why, what would you answer? It's harder to answer than it seems, right? And so the truth is, I think all cultures draw these lines in one place or another. It's just worth keeping that in mind, Um, but... This is specifically for these categories of clean and unclean. It's not hygiene. It's not, you know, because they're ugly. Clearly, that's the least likely one to work on this list is just that the scarier, unattractive things shouldn't be eaten. You know, beauty, even with your food, is in the eye of the beholder. Um, Verse 24, And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. Okay, So they're not to eat the food at all, but if they encounter the carcass, they become unclean. But I want you to notice the timeline here. How long? Until sunset. Okay. That's important because when we get into the next chapter, we're going to be talking in months of uncleanness. And in the next chapter, we're going to be talking about years of uncleanness. There's uh, an order to the things that are being laid out here. Okay. And it also shows us the, um, the temperedness of this reality. Right? It's no good to encounter uh, a dead animal and become unclean, but it's only something that keeps you from the temple for the rest of the day. Okay? 
And so it's, it's, it's wrong to read this as being some sort of a failure. In fact, we're going to see that a lot of the things that make you unclean are natural parts of life, like menstruation or having a baby. The, these things are not simply reduced to screwing up. Okay? They're, they're about proper things in the right places. I was listening to a Leviticus scholar, yes, they exist, people who devote their lives to this book, um, named Jay Sklar today, and he was teaching his class, uh, and he had a pair of shoes that had never been worn, that had never touched the ground, and he set them on a plate. And he said, now, to be honest, these shoes are clean enough to eat on, but you're still not comfortable with them being on a plate, right? In the same way, um, Mary Douglas says, we feel this way about soil. When soil's in a place like a garden, there's nothing wrong with it. It's great. We, we believe in it. It's beautiful. It brings life. But when it's set on your kitchen table or when you find it on your carpet, it's out of bounds. Okay? And so the distinctions that are being drawn here have to do not necessarily with bad things and good things or even, um, uh, even monstrous things and normal things it has to do with this reality of tabernacle and what's appropriate uh, in interaction with the, um, the Israel cultus, with the temple worship. And so if they encounter a carcass, they're unclean till evening. It continues, verse 25, whoever carries part of the carcass shall wash their clothes and be unclean until evening. Okay, so they need to wash and then they're in a holding pattern until the sun goes down. Verse 26, every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean, living or dead. Okay? Carcasses in general don't touch or you're unclean. So, side note, butchers, leather workers, normal trades in Israel, perpetually putting themselves in a state of uncleanness. Okay? Part of life. Expected, But here it also says handling animals on the unclean list makes you unclean. And so it says in verse 27, all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on, on for are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean to evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. They are unclean to you. Verse 29, and these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. And anything on which any of them falls that are dead shall be unclean, whether it's an article of wood or a garment or of uh, garment or a skin, or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water, and it shall be unclean till evening, and then it shall be clean. And so this doesn't just impact people, it impacts your stuff, okay? Now, I'm kind of a hypochondriac, and if I find a gecko in my cereal bowl, I'm going to wash the bowl, right? But remember that this isn't merely hygienic. It has to do with ritual uncleanness, but what we're seeing here is a contagion factor. Do you see that? Why are they to wash the bowl? So that somebody doesn't come along and handle a bowl that's become unclean and therefore become unclean as well, okay? We'll come back to this in a second, but notice verse 33. If any of them falls into an earthenware vessel, all that's in it shall be unclean and you shall break it, okay? Anything in it, say it's a bowl full of flour, the flour is not to be eaten, it's now unclean. And because earthenware is porous, the whole thing is unclean and has to be broken, Like we saw with holy things in the temple, when they are desecrated, 
If they're bronze, they can be scoured and cleaned really well. But if they're earthenware, they have to be broken and thrown out. Okay. Um, verse 35, everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether over the stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean. But whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it's clean. But if water is put on the seed, any part of the carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. Okay, so it's making these distinctions, and now things are starting to get complicated. Maintaining your menu is one thing. Not being around a dead animal is something that we all probably do relatively successfully. But remember, in the ancient world where you don't have windows or doors, you know, an animal in your house dying and falling uh, is not that improbable. I lived on a um, retreat or a conference center for about a year, and one of the strangest things I observed is that rats would climb, it, climb into the palm trees, palm trees and then fall to their death. And this isn't something that just freak accident I witnessed once. I saw it many times over the course of my life there. I don't know if there was a depressed rat population or if climbing palm trees is terribly dangerous or if they lived in the trees and that means that they died in the trees, right? I don't know what it was, but it was a regular thing. And I'll tell you what, if one had landed on me, I would have taken a shower, okay? The idea here, though, I want you to recognize how pervasive it is in life. They're constantly thinking through this. Okay, so what just happened? What did it make unclean? What do we do about it to set it right? How do we, you know, once again, it's ritual, not hygienic, but how do we maintain the contagion so that it doesn't spread? Okay, continuing on in verse 39, and if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean till the evening, and whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean till the evening. And so even with the ones they're allowed to eat, there's this cycle of unclean, waiting, clean. What is it that being clean allows you to do? The primary thing it allows you to do is walk into the tabernacle and offer your sacrifices, okay? But recognize these are not categorizing people, okay? This isn't like a caste system where there's the unclean who aren't allowed near the tabernacle and the clean who are. It's a reality of everyone's life, and it determines when it's appropriate for them to go to the tabernacle. Okay. And so if they accidentally encounter something on the way to the tabernacle, then they have to wait until the day is over and try again. Okay, continuing on here. Verse 41. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes, in, uh, whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours and whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat it for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. Why? For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Okay? Now, it's striking there. We've been talking about clean or unclean, but when, when God comes to the application, he says, be holy, for I am holy. That's the first clue here, that there's more going on here than meets the eye. Okay? Being clean is not synonymous with being holy. But the goal of the clean and unclean categories is holiness. Okay? That's why when we get into the Psalms, for example, in Psalm 51, when David is repenting of his sin, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
He takes these categories that are inherently external and he recognizes the internal significance of them. Circumcision is the same way. Circumcision is an external reflection, but later the prophets call Israel to circumcise their hearts. Even when we get to the New Testament and Jesus makes his criticisms of the religious, it's that they're all about the ritual purity and have no internal purity. And so he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're perfect and pristine. No soil or dirt on the tombstone, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a corpse rotting on the inside, right? And so the criticism that the prophets, that David, the psalmist, that Jesus himself brings is that they got the external motions right, but didn't recognize the internal significance, okay? Now, I want you to recognize something else before we move forward. If we were to try and compare this to a modern version that we do as Christians, it would be the distinguishing between sacred and secular. But when we do that, we usually divide things permanently into two camps. And so making a sandwich is secular, giving our offerings to the Lord is sacred. Church building is sacred, our office space is secular. But I want you to recognize that clean and an unclean as a paradigm runs through every part of their life. It interferes with their kitchen. It interferes with their bedroom. It interferes with their place of business, right? How they go through life and death and birth and all of these things. They're constantly thinking through these things, okay? That's why when we get to Romans, when Paul is talking about how we handle differences of opinion on food in particular, remember when he's talking about food sacrifice to idols? At the end of it, he says, Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay? What he says is all your life should be an act of worship. It's not what you're doing, but how you're doing it. As you, are you doing it as unto the Lord? Is your eating drawing you towards worshiping God as creator? Or is it drawing you away from him? Is it, is it gluttonous? Uh, or is it grateful, right? These distinctions should run through all of our life. And we ha- have to watch out for this modern idea of sacred and secular that says certain jobs are holy, certain jobs are just normal. No, every job interacts with this. As much as the priest is thinking about clean and unclean all day long, so is the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker, right? It runs through all of life. So, He says, I am the Lord your God, that's separation, be holy, that's the intention. Look, verse 45, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. We've touched on this many times, but notice the order. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, therefore be holy. Not be holy and I will save you. I have saved you, so you should be holy. The order there is important. Okay? This is about how they live a life of a saved person and not how they save themselves. Okay? That distinction is important. And then we get a summary statement in verse 46. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Now, why don't we have to keep this law? Why is this not something we engage with? Now, I've encountered people before who criticize Christians of cherry-picking which parts of the Bible to believe and obey and which parts not to obey. And so we make a big deal about 
uh, for example, homosexuality, which is mentioned in the book of Leviticus, but we have no problem wearing two different types of fabric, fabric or eating pork or lobster. And they go, how can you be so inconsistent? Okay. Part of that, as we'll see, has to do with categorically we're talking about two different things. But I also want you to recognize that the Bible is written in such a way that not all commands are supposed to be universal, are supposed to be continuous, are supposed to be permanent. Okay. Sometimes the inconsistence inconsistency that people call us out on, I, I illustrate it this way. If you're standing at a street corner and the light says don't walk and then suddenly it says walk, none of us go, hey, wait a minute, that's totally inconsistent, right? We recognize there's a time for not walking and a time for walking. And the way that the Bible talks about this law is one that is given for Israel and is for a time. And so when Jesus comes, listen to the words in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking about these issues of clean and unclean, of purity, of internal and external. He says this in chapter 7, verse 14. He called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus, this is Mark's commentary here, thus he declared all foods clean. Okay. Now we need to get the point here, so listen to how Jesus finishes this. And he said, what comes out from a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Okay, so do you see the distinction he's making? He's saying effectively that the external was only pointing to an internal truth. And here, Mark recognizes after the fact, looking back on this, in doing so, he declared all things clean. Now, when you get to the book of Acts, we see how this stuff plays out in particular, right? So the day of Pentecost happens. Uh, the disciples are filled with the Spirit. They're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And one of the things that happens next is a man named Cornelius who is a Gentile. God wants to bring Peter as a preacher who is a Jew to come and preach the gospel to him. And so there's some prep work that goes on. The prep work is like this. An angel appears to Cornelius and says, send for Peter. Here's the address and he will come and tell you about the salvation that God has done. And while that's happening, Peter is up on his roof meditating, waiting for lunch, and he sees this vision of a sheet descending with all of the unclean animals and everything else on it, and he hears God speak to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, but I've never eaten anything that was unclean. And he sees the vision three times, and every time at the end of it, God says, what I have declared clean, do not call unclean. Okay? Now, that vision is not merely about Peter now being able to eat these things. It's about him being able to enter into fellowship with non-Jewish people. 
right? In fact, you know, the first, this is how he begins his sermon in the house of Cornelius. He says, I'm a respectable Jew, and you know that I wouldn't be here if God hadn't sent me, right? Because he knows, in fact, what happens next? The church blows a gasket and says, Peter, we heard you had lunch at a Gentile's house, right? And he has to use God and say, God sent me to defend the whole thing and say, the spirit showed up. If God has given them, then right? That whole issue comes out of this place. The separation period of what was being done with Israel has ended. God's salvation is now going out to the ends of the earth and the body he's building is multicultural and multinational. And so the separation and the food that goes with it is set aside, okay? But here's the thing. When people miss this understanding, this is what you should tell them. This is not some sort of inconsequential thing. It's not, well, it doesn't really matter if I eat lobster so I can eat lobster. It's just food. That's not what this is. No, it's something so much greater than that. It's that the reality of what Jesus has done is so deep, so internally deep, that the external manifestations and even the teaching tools are no longer necessary. He says, your real problem is what comes out of your heart. That's what defiles you. And those aren't things that are coming from the outside. It's not contaminants out there. The problem is internal. And that's where Jesus deals with your dirtiness at the source to such a degree that the external markers are no longer necessary. Take Jesus as an example. Now, we're not going to talk about menstruation tonight, but that's one of the things that makes you unclean. Jesus encounters a woman who has been bleeding perpetually for 12 years, meaning that she is completely excluded from the worship of Israel. And because of that condition, she's not even supposed to interact with other people. When she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, that's a defiling action. That's why she does it quietly. And so when Jesus goes, who touched me? Do you understand how high the stakes are in this woman's mind? If she owns up, she could be in serious trouble. But Jesus wants her to be publicly seen because she's no longer in a state of unclean and now in a state of clean. And so he makes it public for her sake so that she can re-enter into the worship of Israel. But here's what I want you to notice. Why is it that this woman didn't defile Jesus? Because Jesus' holiness works in the other direction. Jesus touches the widow of Nain's son and he comes to life. Jesus doesn't get defiled. The defiling corpse gets alive, right? It's a reversal of direction. A leper comes and falls down before him and says, God, if you're willing, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me cleanse. And he touches him and he says, I'm willing, be clean. And then what does he say? Go show yourself to the priests and go through the process. Why? Because the process is necessary? No, but the process is necessary for him to be able to go home, for him to interact with Israel again, for him to be removed from his isolation, okay? And so here's the point. What God does in the Holy Spirit doesn't just temporarily cleanse us. It doesn't just wash us. It becomes a fountain of living water. It becomes a source of cleansing. Okay? And so these aren't tertiary issues. This is either Jesus did something profound in his death or not. And that's why we don't keep these laws anymore. Okay? Now, chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. 
and on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. And so here we see that childbearing brings about a state of uncleanness, but we need to be careful here. There's two things that it's clearly not saying. The first is, and we'll get into this more when we deal with bodily emissions, it's not because sex is sinful. Okay. In fact, it's not the conception that's on the table here at all. It's the birth. Okay. Second, it's not that birth or even birth of a terrible little sinner baby is sinful. Birth is exactly what Adam and Eve were called to do, be fruitful and multiply. Right? In fact, it's one of the great blessings that God gives is children. The issue has to do with the bleeding. Okay? The idea here is once again one that is somewhat symbolic. It says later in Leviticus, for the life is in the blood. Okay? And so healthy bodies don't bleed. Now this is an interesting thing and it's just a side note. The general definition we use for disease, pregnancy actually suits, fits the bill. Okay. I mean, most of us would recognize that it's clearly not a disease. It's like the seven biological signs of life that fire also fulfills, even though fire isn't alive. Okay. But nonetheless, the issue here is that, that blood, and specifically bleeding, points to death, and not the God who is life. Okay. We'll see other examples of this. And so she's in a state of uncleanness. And side note, if you've never had a baby... It's the scariest thing that I've ever been around, okay? My wife's had five babies, and every one of them I freak out about. We've never had really serious instances. When my friends go into the hospital and they decide to keep the, mo- you know, the, the, the moment private to themselves and not tell anybody, I literally pace rooms and freak out and fret. It's terrifying what the body goes through to have a baby, okay? But the bleeding points to this reality of death. In fact, the birth itself points to the curse on the woman. The consequence of sin and a manifestation that the world has gone wrong is the labor that goes with childbearing and the high mortality rate and the pain and the toil of labor itself. And so all of that leads to a period of uncleanness and, um, and here it says that first it's for seven days And then if it's a boy, he's circumcised on the eighth day, and then 33 more days. So that's a total of 40 days, okay? Now, notice it's different for if they have a girl. Verse 6, and when the days of her purifying are complete, or sorry, we are in verse 5. But if she bears a female child, then she'll be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Now, before you call a modern fowl, There's a few things you need to consider here, okay? First off, this is clearly not an issue of evaluation. As we'll see in just a second, boys and girls, whether you have one or the other, the sacrifice is the same, the one that comes with the cleansing. It's not one heavy sacrifice and one low, they're equal. Second, a longer period of uncleanness, you can't directly correlate with value. So for example, if you touch a dead pig, you're only unclean until evening. If you touch a dead human, the mourning period and the uncleanness is longer. Which one of those is more valuable? The human. And that leads to the greater period and not the least. Okay. 
Second, remember that uncleanness is not some sort of a, um, of a sentencing on the quality of a person at all. It has something else, it has to do with something else. Now, if you ask me why, honestly, I don't know. I can tell you a few things. I can tell you that similar cultures in the days of Israel also doubled the period of uncleanness for daughters. I can tell you that in that day and age, since daughters were generally smaller in size, that there was more involved in uh, the health of the baby and those things if they were girls. They were harder to keep alive. The mortality rate for young baby girls was much higher than young baby boys in the ancient world. Um, I can tell you that, uh, that there are some cultures that believed that the nature of having a girl um, uh, actually was all around riskier and it took your body longer to recover from. There was even a doctor in the 1800s who was a Christian who tried to demonstrate that, but it's a relatively inconclusive thing. We know actually that bodies take longer to heal from women, but it's only by a day or two. It's not by months. Okay? So I really don't know. But don't read into this an evaluation because for starters, recognize here that women are allowed to worship, to bring their sacrifices in the tabernacle. And so this condition is set aside for when they can't do so, but it is profound in the ancient world that they can do so at all. Okay. But nonetheless, verse 6, when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Okay. Now, why does she need to bring a sin offering? Because she you know, copulated sinfully and now she has a baby? No. It's because she's been away from the worship in the tabernacle and is not sinless and hasn't been sinless for 40 days. Okay? It just jumpstarts her relationship with the Lord again with a burnt offering, which is dedication, and a sin offering, the same way they all start. Okay? Um, notice also it says, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. That's the offering of the poor. Right? And so even poor women had a way to do this. Verse 7, he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. Remember, see, there's the emphasis. It's not the pregnancy. It's not the baby. It's the blood flow. Uh, this is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she can take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now, side note. We see this process lived out in the lives of Mary and Joseph. In the Gospel of Luke, we see that on the eighth day, they circumcise Jesus, and then they bring an offering on the 40th day, a pair of two turtle doves, just as it says here, which points out two things about Mary and Joseph. First, they fell in the category of the poor. Jesus was born into a poor family. And second, they were obedient Jews. In fact, Luke seems adamant to stress that reality, and he's consistently pointing to things. So when, when Jesus becomes a man, transitioning from the age of 12 to the age of 13, guess what? He goes to the festival, because now he's an adult male, and he's required by law to be there. Okay? Luke seems to emphasize these things. So, chapter 13. Now, here it moves into, your, your Bible probably says, laws about leprosy, okay? Now, a couple of things. When we say the word leprosy in modern English, we're talking about generally one disease, a disease that's also known as Hansen's disease, who was not the first guy to be diagnosed of it, but the doctor 
who finally categorized and labeled it, Dr. Hansen. Um, that is not what we're reading about tonight. In fact, um, what we're going to see tonight is a broad term that because of the Greek translation and then how it flowed into Latin is generally, just traditionally, translated leprosy. But it's, some scholars believe that there's not a very likelihood that leprosy in, in terms of Hansen's disease even existed at this time and in this place. Even as you read over this, we're going to see diverse aspects of these skin conditions, none of which align with the disease that we know of today as Hansen's disease. And not only that, but there's one scholar who argues that Hansen's disease actually would be a clean skin condition and not an unclean one. All of that, I think, is very striking. But it's just worth keeping in mind that here in Leviticus chapter 13, it's better to talk about this as being grievous skin conditions and not this title that we have called leprosy. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of the sons of the priests. The priest shall examine him in the diseased area on the skin of his body, and if the hair of the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it's a case of leprous disease. Okay. Now, what we're going to see here is actually seven different ifs. If it comes and this is what you find, if it's this way, and basically it's going to look at four differing conditions or three different conditions, and then the final four are actually other things that may turn into these issues, like being burned or going bald. Okay. That's just structurally how the thing lays out. But what it says here is that when they're concerned that they have something going on in their skin and it needs to be diagnosed of an uncleanness st status thing, of, of a skin disease or not, they bring it to the priest, the priest inspects it, and it tells him what to look for. Okay? So the first one, notice again halfway through verse 3, if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it's a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Okay. Now, I want you to notice, we'll see this as we go on, the uncleanness here is not merely one that keeps them from the tabernacle, but also one that isolates them from people. Okay. And so, if you're diagnosed here as unclean, you're removed from your tent, from your family, from the dwelling place of Israel as a whole, and you now live in, in a place apart. Okay. When you walk, as we'll see, you have to cover yourself up dress like you're mourning for death so everybody can spot you as a mourner and call out unclean, unclean so that people keep their distance, okay? So that shows us tonight that there's categorical, uh, categorical aspects of uncleanness. The ones we just read, out, read about don't keep you from other people, don't send you out of the town, but they keep you from the tabernacle. But these ones have to do with social uncleanness, okay? Verse four, but... If the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair on it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. Okay, so he quarantines him. And the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. Okay, so they're looking to see if things are getting worse or maintaining the same. Verse 6. The priest shall examine again on the seventh day. If the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only an eruption. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. Okay, so notice, even if he's clean, 
he still needs to wash himself in his clothes, and then he's just, he enters right into normal life. But it's interesting, isn't it, that there is, there is a medicinal quality, there's a uh, medical aspect to what we're looking at. And so there's a diagnosis, right? And there are things to be looked for. Uh, and then there is the quarantining. And then there is also this social distance that's to be kept. I don't think that means that these things are primarily medical, okay? Because there are other diseases that are contagious. They're just not as easy to see as a skin disease. In fact, why is a skin disease such a big deal? Because skin diseases look like dying, right? Externally, they look like you're headed towards being a corpse, especially the more pronounced versions of them. In fact, it says that when uh, Miriam is struck by God with leprosy, that's the way that Moses speaks about is that she looks like a dead woman, okay? And so once again here, there's a symbolism it's incongruent with the fact that God is life and that people's lives are supposed to look like lives. And so there's a, there's a symbolism here, but there's another one here that I think is really important. It's the contagion factor. Okay? Disease is a good picture of sin because it spreads, because it has a tendency to take over our own life, because it impacts other people around us uh, and can even draw them into sin. These skin diseases are a form of corruption, right? It's a lot like leaven is pictured in the Bible. And so when Paul is talking about some sin that's going on in the church of Corinth, and he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You need to remove this. You need to isolate it, or it's going to affect other people in the church. The ideas clearly here are related, okay? There's something there to learn here. Let's keep looking. Uh, Verse 7, but if the eruption spreads in the skin, after he's shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look, and if the eruption is spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's a leprous disease. Scenario 2, verse 9, when a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall look. If there's a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there's raw flesh in the swelling, an opened wound, okay, it's a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. Okay? No second chances. If there's open wounds on the body, that puts them in this category. Verse 12. If the leprous disease breaks out in the skin so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see... Then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It is all turned white, and he is clean. The idea here is that it's, uh, when it says it's all turned white, is that the old skin is sloughing off. And so you can see it loosening up and disconnecting from the body. So this isn't open sores. This is just, um, you know, the end of a really bad, um, a really bad rash. Um, verse 14, but when raw flesh, open wounds appear on him, he shall be unclean, and the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Raw flesh is unclean, for it's a leprous disease, okay? Once again, if the idea here is one of health and wholeness, then an open wound is clearly not that, okay? There's a, there's a relationship here between wholeness and holiness. There's a reflection of these two things. 
Um, verse 16, if the raw flesh recovers and turns white again, then he shall come to the priest and the priest shall examine him and the disease is turned white and the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. So if you get in a state of leprous uncleanness, but then you heal, you call for the priest again and you're entered back into society. Verse 18, if there is in the skin of the body a boil and it heals and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a reddish white spot, then it shall be shown to the priest and the priest shall look and if it appears deeper than the skin and the hair is turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's a case of leprous disease. So what is this? This is a boil that's gotten worse. The infection has gotten deeper into the flesh. Once again, the hair is turned white. But if it's faded, then the priest shall shut him up for seven days, and if it spreads in the skin, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's a disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread, it's the scar of the boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. Okay? I, another thing that I want to point out to you as we're looking at this tonight is to recognize the, the positive side of this too. Okay? Imagine that you're an Israelite and you notice that your brother-in-law clearly has something going on with his skin. Okay. It's going to make you nervous. You're going to keep your distance until you get the prognosis from the priest that everything's okay. okay. Like that woman with the flow of blood, there needs to be a way to declare, oh, that's, this is not a big deal. This doesn't separate. Um, and so, so that's part of this too. So we saw boils. Now let's look at burns. Verse 24, or when the body has a burn on its skin and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a spot, reddish white or white, the priest shall examine it. If the hair in the spot is turned white and it appears deeper than the skin, then it's a leprous disease. It's broken out in the burn. And the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's a case of leprous disease. But if the priest examines it and there's no white hair in the spot, it's no deeper than the skin, but is faded, the priest shall shut him up seven days. And the priest shall examine him in the seventh day if it's spreading in the skin. Then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's a case of leprous disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread in the skin, but is faded, it is a swelling from the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him clean, for it's the scar of the burn. Verse 29, when a man or woman has a disease on the head or the beard. Now, probably all of the things we've been reading applies to women. It just wants to make sure that, although we're mentioning beards, women are included. Okay. Um, but what does it say here? So if, if there's something going on with your head or under the hair of your beard, the priest shall examine the disease, and if it appears deeper than the skin and the hair in it is yellow and thin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's an itch, a leprous disease of the head or beard. And if the priest examines the itching disease and appears no deeper than the skin and there's no black hair in it, then the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the disease. If the itch is not spread and there's no yellow hair in it and the itch appears to be no deeper than the skin, then he shall shave himself, but the itch he shall not shave, and the priest shall shut him up in person with the itching disease for another seven days. Why does he shave himself there? Probably so you know that if it's spreading, right? Okay. Verse 34, on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the itch. If it's not spread in the skin and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the itch spreads in the skin after his cleansing, the priest shall examine him, and if the itch is spread in the skin, the priest need not seek for the yellow hair. He is unclean. So if it comes back again, it's just as serious as any of those other symptoms, and it puts him in that status. But if in his eyes the itch is unchanged and black hair is grown and the itch is healed and he's clean, the priest shall pronounce him clean. Just a few more here. When a man or woman has spots over the skin and the body of white spots, the priest shall look and if the spots on the skin of the body are of a dull white, it's leucoderma that is broken out on the skin, he is clean. 
If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald, he is clean. Okay, it's probably an important one to note. Baldness is not clearly a sign of uncleanness. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, has baldness of the forehead, he is clean. But if there's on the bald head or on the bald forehead a reddish-white diseased area, it's a leprous disease breaking out on the bald head or on his bald forehead. Then the priest shall examine him. And if the disease swelling reddish-white of his bald head or his bald forehead, like the appearance of a leprous disease in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man, he's unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. The disease is on his head. Okay, now here... Here's what it looks like to be unclean. Verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. When there's, uh, so we're going to stop there. Where it's going to go next is to talk about similar issues in garments and in uh, like leather bags and things like that, and then it will move on to houses, okay? But I want you to notice the imagery consistently is of spreading corruption, okay? That's the principle here. The reason why disease is such a good picture of what's actually wrong with humanity is because it's got this all-consuming aspect of it, Okay? This is an important lesson for us to realize as we close tonight because we play this game where we think that we can contain our sin, right? And so we think it's just a little. It's not a big deal. I, you know, and a lot of times the way we see our sin originally is something we choose to do to indulge ourselves. But what the Bible says is if anyone sins, he is a slave to sin, and so it starts as something you choose to do, and then it's something you can't help doing, and then it's something that you can't stop doing. It spreads, it grows in power, it's pervasive, it runs through your life. And so maybe it's something that only impacts just you privately and personally, but then it starts to flow out into your relationships. And so all the Levites can do is containment, right? All they can do is just isolate to make sure it really is and then send it away. There's no, there's no curatives here. There's no way to deal with it. He, uh, God doesn't give them a process of healing these diseases, just of diagnosing and separating. And that's something, once again, that points forward to the reality of what Jesus does. He doesn't merely diagnose our leprosy. He cures lepers. In fact... In fact, some of these skin diseases fall into the camp, not all of them, fall into the camp of permanent and incurable. Okay. And so it's one of the striking marks of the anticipated Messiah in the prophets that he will heal lepers because it's just not something that happens. Okay. And so why, why is that miracle there? Why does Jesus do that? To pronounce the coming of the kingdom of God, to identify himself as Jehovah Rapha, God the healer, to demonstrate that he has the power to bring life where death is pervasive and prevailing, right? And so Israel, basically, through the clean and unclean laws, is given a perpetual object lesson, a part of their life that is inescapable, Right? You get a rash, it suddenly becomes, becomes a religious thing. You're having a sandwich, it's a religious thing. 
you are giving birth to a baby, it's a religious thing. God invades all of their life. And part of that has to do with the fact of what the tabernacle is and how it works. But a larger part has to do with the fact of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. And so I don't like to read aloud or think about leprous skin diseases any more than you do. But it's worth recognizing once again that when we get to the end of the book of Leviticus, it's not merely, I'm so glad we don't have to do this stuff. It's a measurement of the depths of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Okay? So don't do one measurement without doing the other. You should rejoice in the fact that these things are no longer necessary, but more than that, you should rejoice in the per- profound, deeper work that God has done in Jesus Christ that these things merely pointed to, that they merely represented, that were only skin deep, as it were. Let's pray. Father, I know that this is a passage of Scripture that can be particularly difficult for us. Um, We really have lost a sense of significance for ritual um, or or value in, in making distinctions in our life that are merely symbolic. But like Israel, you have called us and you have brought us not out of Egypt, but out of our sins, out of death and into life. And you have made us your people and you've called us to be holy as I am holy. In fact, Paul quotes from the book of Leviticus and calls us to that same thing. And we know that defilement is not merely one uh, manifested in a pork sandwich or an issue of blood. It's defilement that comes from our own behavior rooted in the realities of our own heart, of lust and of greed, of anger and of pride. And I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us anew of those things and that you would do a deeper work that would uproot those things fully and totally and permanently. And we thank you for what you've done in Jesus Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.